Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. How are you, Mr. Rios? Uh, I'm pretty good, RFM. How are you? You're looking good, I must say. This Excellent. is episode 169 of Mormonism Live. Tonight is February 28th, 2024. Not the last day in February this year on account of it's a what, Mr. Real? It's a leap year. Yes. It's my daughter's birthday today. Oh, wow. Very Look wonderful. And you're joining us anyway? I'm joining us anyway. Here I am for Mormonism Live, sacrificing my daughter's birthday. Actually, uh, we hung out a couple days ago, and uh, my wife was the DD, took them all out, and uh, she's had plenty of fun for her birthday. But here we are. No one's celebrating it today. We celebrated it Sunday. And your daughter's 13, and she needs a DD? No, my daughter is uh, 23, 24, something like oh, that. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So everything's copacetic. Yeah, whatever that means. Speaking of copacetic, thank you so much because uh, Brush Up Your Shakespeare is back on the air at YouTube, taken down for some reason, otherwise unexplained, except apparently they were alleging that Shakespeare and I were engaged in deceptive practices of some sort, otherwise unspecified, and you, on my behalf, wrote an appeal and said, what the heck are you doing? And then within 24 hours, a human being apparently looked at it and then said, sorry, we made a mistake and put it back up. So I wanted to thank you for that, Mr. Real. Who knows what happened, but we did fix it. Yes. Anything that you would like to talk about? I know Thrive's coming up this weekend down there in St. George, your neck of the woods. I'll yeah. be down there. Yep. I, I knew that you would be uh, heading this way in a, another day or two here. And uh, talking about Brush Up Your Shakespeare, a new episode did hit today. Uh, and I did record another episode for Mormon Sunday School, uh, which I've uh, been allowed, due to your graciousness, to sort of collaborate with you. So I'm excited. It's a wonderful collaboration. You're doing a great job. And I've watched the first part, but busy getting ready for the show tonight. I had to postpone the second part okay. until later. That's where but it we gets got good. A great, I'm sorry, what? That's where it gets good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's about uh, something about Adam and Eve and the fall or free agency or something. What is it today? So the fall is the one that came out today. And then the one I just recorded today was uh, on the Holy Ghost. Really? Okay. Well, mm -hmm. that'll be exciting. Yeah. Holy Ghost. Okay. But what's even more exciting right now is we've got a great show lined up. We have a wonderful guest coming on the show. He is an attorney. His name is Timothy Kosnoff, And he has made a career of sorts of suing the LDS church on behalf of, uh, I think, mostly children who have been sexual, sexually abused in some manner or other and suing the LDS church in order to try and seek justice for those clients. If we could bring Mr. Kosnov on the screen. There he is, the man, the legend. Tim Kosnov, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me. You, you look fantastic, and that is a wonderful view you have over your shoulders into downtown Seattle, I'm taking it? Yeah, right in the center of downtown, right in the heart of the beast. Wow. It mm -hmm. reminds me of an episode of Frasier for some reason. Well, he had a condo in Seattle. Anyway, okay, so regardless of that, what we want to talk about tonight is your career in 60 minutes or less talking about how you got involved in litigating litigating against the LDS church on these types of issues 
And then we want to just give the floor over to you to talk about anything that you think is interesting and significant that you've encountered along the way. So how did you get involved in this, Mr. Kosnoff? Well, I was, uh, I was a tired, frustrated lawyer making a living, uh, sort of uh, handling uh, criminal cases and a few personal injury cases, sole practitioner, uh, sort of a hand-to-mouth operation. And uh, one day, a young man came in, he was 17, and he told me the story of how he had been abused by a man named Franklin Curtis, who was an elder, a high priest in the Mormon church in Portland when he was a boy, uh, that uh, church leaders had known about this man's long history of violence towards children. The man, had, this man had spent most of his life in prison and somehow he was able to make his way into the church um, and groomed this boy's family convinced him that he was just a kindly old man who wanted to live out his days in the home of a nice Mormon family. And so uh, his mother uh, responded to this appeal, but went to the bishop and asked the bishop what he thought. And the bishop didn't reveal to her what he knew, which is this man should have been nowhere around children, shouldn't have been allowed around children within uh, the ward. Uh, but never told her about that. She brought him into the home, and because they lived in a small house, limited means, he lived. the old man lived in the same bedroom with Jeremiah, who became my client, and proceeded to rape him nightly for more than a year. So I, I heard this story, and I, I'd never... I'd never handled a civil case. I'd never litigated a civil case. Um, and I asked him why he contacted me. He said, well, I went through the Yellow Pages and uh, it looked up criminal lawyers. And I saw your, your ad. I had a little ad in the local phone book. And he said, what happened to me was criminal, so I figured you could help me. <laughs> <clears throat> that, there on the screen is Frank Curtis. Uh, so I was intrigued. So I said yes, took on the case, and that began a, a five-year saga of litigation against the LDS Church, which was litigated in Portland, in Multnomah County, and ultimately ended in the Mormon Church paying my client $3 million. Uh, and, um, but in the process, they had given me uh, the equivalent of a PhD in Mormonism and all the dirty tricks that the church and their lawyers pull uh, to try and cover up and conceal child sexual abuse. And in the course of representing him, I encountered and eventually represented <clears throat> more than a dozen other victims of Frank Curtis, whom had been abused by him in LDS wards around the country. So it, it, um, it was quite a story and it was eventually told in a book by Lisa Davis called The Sins of Brother Curtis, which was published around 2012. And it's a very good read. And uh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't write the book, but I cooperated and, and helped her with it. And, uh, and so it, it is uh, more uh, 
complete telling of the story than I can uh, tell here in a short period of time. But uh, after that experience, I mean, it was a big settlement, $3 million. Uh, at that time, it was my understanding, it was the largest reported settlement of an individual sexual abuse claim in the United States. It was um, uh, reported in the New York Times, Washington Post, Associated Press. And as a result, you know, I, my name got out there as this, you know, this giant killer, you know, David versus Goliath and David won, which was pretty extraordinary because um, I didn't have an army of lawyers behind me. I didn't have the ability to take on an institution and a law firm like this, and they threw everything they could at us. But, Tim, I'm going to have a couple of questions that I'd like to ask you about this case, all right? Yes. Um, the first one is this. You are an attorney. You have no experience really doing this kind of law, which is its own kind of specialty, even though we're not supposed to use that word when we're advertising, but it is. It's its own uh, focus. It has all of its own things that you have to know that are specific to it. And more than nine times out of 10, if an attorney gets a contacted by a prospective client like this and they don't practice this area of law, and it's somewhat daunting going up against a big organization, they would refer it to somebody else or say, no, thank you, I can't help you. What was it that made you take this case in spite of all of that? Uh, I think uh, where I was in my career, I was burnt out. I wanted a challenge. Um, uh, I was tired of representing criminal defendants um, and uh, it was just, it was the, it was the challenge of it. Uh, the story that he told me I thought was extraordinary, uh, that this was a one in a million case, a career case, that a church would knowingly cover up for a child molester like this. and and not warn the parents and allow them to bring a man like this into their home and then proceed to lie about it and cover it up. And so as I did research, um, at the time, um, there were research services like Lexis and Westlaw that were trying to get lawyers to subscribe. And so they'd have these promotional things where uh, you can do it on a trial basis and you get access to all their databases for, you know, a month. So I went on and I had access to millions of newspaper articles. And so I researched this subject and found that there were cases reported in large and small newspapers involving the Mormon church all over the country and had been going on for years. Um, and many of those were probably not picked up because they were small papers, small town papers that uh, just didn't get included in this database. But I realized that this was not an isolated case. It was part of a, a pattern. And as I read through these stories and then read some of the uh, pleadings and some of the cases that I looked up, some of the appellate decisions and so forth, I realized that this was this was a pattern with this church. This was this was a system. It was systemic. And, uh, and then on top of that, Oregon was a state that had punitive damages. And I thought it was a case that presented the opportunity um, to expose the church and to make an example of them by obtaining 
a very, very large verdict against them. Um, a $3 million settlement was, was significant at the time. Um, I, you know, I begged my client not to accept it. We were on the eve of trial. We were one week away from jury selection and we had a great case, but the lawyers and the powers that be had just worn my client down emotionally and psychologically, and he just couldn't continue any, any further after five years. And, you know, as a lawyer, you know, the client is the boss. And when the client says, we're done, I'm going to accept it, and we're going to move on, then that's that's what you do, and that's what we did. Um, but the second, the second question I had, if you if you were done answering the first one, Tim. Sure, sure. You mentioned all these dirty tricks that you were surprised that the Curtin McConkie lawyers were pulling out of their bag and using on you. Can you tell us what some of those were? Well, uh, yeah. Uh, wow, where do I start? Uh, With the first, worst one. First. The um, worst. The worst. <laughs> well, uh, obstructing a lawyer's right to use the discovery rules to get access to the truth, to get access to documents, to get access to the testimony of material witnesses. And at every step, they would um, obstruct, instruct a bishop not to answer a question, uh, instruct you know, just lay people, uh, members of the church who had material information about Frank Curtis not to answer the question. Um, uh, hire lawyers for individuals that they couldn't represent uh, to come in and obstruct my efforts to get, you know, information. Um, I, I think that's probably uh, the biggest. But everywhere I went in the country to try and take a deposition, because as you know, um, you have permission from the local court where the witness resides for leave to take the deposition in another state. So it's a procedure. It's 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 a it's a formality typically, but they would object to that. They would bring in uh, local lawyers that they would hire uh, to uh, accuse me of unethical behavior. This is a fishing expedition. Uh, Mr. Kosnoff is uh, he's got no basis for taking the deposition of my client. Yada yada yada. I mean, and this is the kind of thing that you wouldn't typically see in a civil litigation involving another subject matter, uh, maybe another kind of tort. You know, most civil lawyers, both plaintiff and defense, they know the rules. And you wouldn't find defense lawyers that would engage in these kind of tactics. But lawyers that defend the Mormon church, and to some extent I see this with other uh, religious organizations that I've sued, uh, they're of a different kind. They're of a different character. They are true believers. Um, you know, the, the the law firm for the bishop or the archbishop, uh, you know, these are typically Catholic law firms and they're not necessarily the best lawyers, but uh, the bishop wants lawyers that he know knows at the end of the day are going to be absolutely loyal to to him. To the bishop and it's the same kind of thing with the Mormon church they only use lds lawyers and even when they have to go out of state and associate in local law firms they'll pick out the lawyer at the big latham and watkins or whatever big you know law firm there is that's the 
that's the LDS partner. Mm -hmm. um, and that person may have no litigation experience, but that's who they want heading up their defense in that particular jurisdiction. So this gives you a sense of, of how they operate. And because they have unlimited funds to throw at the defense of these cases, they make um, a point that was lost on me initially, which is they will spend any amount of money to beat you. Uh, and not using the law, but simply using their economic clout to make it so uneconomic for you to represent a client in a claim like this against the church that you won't do it. You may do it this time and they may pay a settlement, but you won't do it the next time because unless you're going to go out of business, unless you're going to go bankrupt, you're not going to take on a case like this. And that's the reputation that the, that the LDS church uh, has has sent out far and wide, which is why there's so few lawyers that are willing to take on these cases. Are you willing to lose, lose your firm, to lose all of your money? How many law firms you know, do you know of that can afford to litigate a case for five to seven years, to pay staff, to pay overhead, you know, to advance hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in costs for deposition, for experts, et cetera, et cetera, and then carry those costs for years, the Mormon church can do that, but I don't know of any law firm, even some of the most well-heeled plaintiffs, mass tort law firms can carry those kinds of uh, risks for that period of time. So th that's it. It's just, they use their economic power, their clout to, to strangle the baby in the bassinet from the outset. If you're thinking about taking on one of these cases, don't. And most lawyers, you know, they've got better ways and better things to do with their lives to lose money than to take on cases in which they're going to lose everything. They may have the best case in the world on the facts and the law, but unless you've got the ability to withstand it, and, and who, who does? You even go out and borrow a million dollars, two million dollars, you know, to take on the Mormon church? It, it takes a fool like me, like I was, to do this because I didn't really have a whole lot to lose. And I was just, you know, I just did it myself. I did my own investigation. Uh, you know, I drafted and typed my own briefs and memos and it was good enough. I, I was in the right. I had the facts on my side. I had the law on my side. And eventually I found some judges who, I think they sort of felt sorry for me. You know, yeah. they just thought I was, you know, I was fighting the good fight and they weren't going to, you know, throw an obstacle in my way. But that's, um, but I, I but, you know, after the, the Curtis case, you know, I had the audacity to come to Salt Lake City and hold a press event on the steps of the Joseph M. Smith Memorial Building and talk about how the Mormon Church had paid $3 million to settle this case, talked all about it. Then I put up a web page in the early day, uh, days of the, of the, hey, Tim, uh, the Tim. Can you tell us the rest of the story about the press conference you had in Salt Lake City? Oh, I know it was the story. Oh, it was hilarious. It's it's also documented, and there's some photographs of it in in the book. I'm not. I'm, I guess I'm plugging uh, Lisa's book, but um, yeah. So, flew my client and his mother uh, out to uh, to Salt Lake. This was we had, we had held a press conference in the morning in Portland, and then we flew out. Uh, to Salt Lake and uh, held a press event on the steps 
of the Smith Memorial Building right there at Temple Square. Um, church security officers came over and, you know, threatened to call the police. And we said, great, call them, you know, hopefully they'll come. All the cameras were assembled. I mean, it was quite a show. You know, local media in Salt Lake, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. And, you know, I was saying things like, you know, we demonstrated in this case that the Mormon church is pedophile heaven on earth. Because look at the history of the story of this man. And this is not just one man. You know, I had hundreds of cases of men like Frank Curtis in the Mormon church who had uh, preyed upon children and been shielded, protected, recycled by the church. Um, you know, was it self-promotional? You bet. Did more cases come in as a result of that? Oh, you bet. So, um, uh so that sort of launched my career. And then shortly after that case settled in August of 2001, the Catholic Church scandal exploded with what happened in Boston. And I continued to take on LDS cases, but within a matter of months, I had hundreds of Catholic Church cases. And then Jehovah's Witness cases and Southern Baptist and all these other, because people would see this and they would go, well, wait a minute, this." This may have happened in the Mormon church, but it sounds very similar to what happened to me, you know, with the Catholic priest or, you know, the Boy Scout leader in my Catholic parish and so forth. So people started connecting the dots and there were there were very few lawyers, a handful of lawyers in the whole country that had any experience doing this at all. And so suddenly I was like, you know, the pro from Dover, the expert, which I wasn't. It's just I I had one win under my belt. It was a big one. And um, so I ran with it, and uh, it, you know we continued to litigate. I went on to uh, litigate and try, I think, four or five cases. The most recent one was the one in West Virginia. Uh, and um, so I got pretty good at putting these cases on in front of juries. Uh, didn't lose a one. Um, uh, and it was and Tim, so by the way, when you, say, when you say you didn't lose a one that is a testament not only to your prowess in the courtroom but as both you and i know it's a testament to your prowess at selecting which cases you're going to take well that's that that's 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 right rfm i mean i you know i i'm okay in the courtroom but if you've got the facts and the law and you're prepared it's not the brilliance of the lawyer that wins cases. You know, lawyers want to take all the credit when they win, and then they, you know, they blame themselves when they lose. And that's just I blame wrong. the judge when I lose. Yeah. Well, I sometimes I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> By the but way, I think Bill has a question. I'm sorry, Tim. Go ahead. Yeah. It seems to me, first off, uh, in a church that has tons of money and loves to have its money, uh, it seems like it would be if it wanted to be healthy, if it wanted to be appropriate, it could just let all of these bad, unhealthy people, just let them let them suffer the consequences of the things they do. But the church seems to highly prioritize keeping these cases knocked down. And I'm just curious, having dealt with the church, what your two cents is on why they spend so much time, energy, and resources to uh, to fight these cases tooth and nail, to try to 
to try to essentially help protect the abuser when the abusers aren't paid employees of the church. They're just lay members, maybe a lay leader, but not really. The church really, to some degree, wouldn't be liable if it just handled things completely the right way. Um, why do they fight so hard in these? Wow. Uh, big question. Long answer. I'll try and give you a short one. Um, number one is they're slow learners, but they are learning. And I don't have to fight as hard to get reasonable settlements with them. Mostly, I don't have to file lawsuits at all anymore. Um, it, it's if I've got a good case, I'll pick up the phone, I'll write a letter. In these cases, sometimes we get it done, you know, mano a mano. Sometimes we bring in a mediator, but we've got this little, you know, little trust thing going and we're getting cases resolved. Um, good lawyers on both sides, knowing the strengths and weaknesses of their respective cases, should settle cases. I mean, cases that go to trial in front of a jury are generally the result of miscalculation by one lawyer or the other. Um, cases have, every case can and should settle. They don't, and typically it's because one or the other side is, has miscalculated in some way. Um, so we have so much history together that we can talk shorthand to each other and get cases done. And that's gratifying, okay? And I think part of it is, you know, they, they've dealt with me and they know that I will file the lawsuit, but I won't just a lawsuit. I'll stand on the courthouse steps and hold a press event and do the thing that they hate the most, which is damage them in the court of public opinion. They care very much about how they're perceived. You know, as your viewers may know, the church spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year promoting itself, you know, as a wholesome mainstream religious organization. It struck me a few years ago, I was driving here in Seattle, and there was this big billboard on the street that I drive on, and it was, the billboard was this really good-looking blonde man, his blonde wife and daughter, and just gorgeous. And, um, and the caption was, I'm a fireman, and I'm a Mormon. And I, I what? Why would you put up a billboard? What does that mean? What is, what's the message here? And I thought about that over and over again. And it, it, what, I, what I've concluded is um, the LDS, at least the leaders of the church, are very concerned about how they're perceived. And they want to be perceived as mainstream, as accepted and acceptable. Um, and yet... When stories like Frank Curtis and these other stories come out, it does so much damage, reputational damage to them. You know, you're right, Bill. It, it's why? Why would you do that? That's not even rational. If you're trying to promote yourself um, as a reasonable Christian mainstream organization, and you're, you know, you're a missionary. You you want to reach out. You want to recruit people. You want to you want to convert people into your church. So why would you do that? Um, I think it gets into something that is so deep, so historical, so cultural, that it would take us a few episodes to unpack it all. But in the end, 
it comes down to the fact that the church does not, will not accept being told what to do, what to think, or how to behave by anybody, not Tim Kosnoff, not the state of Washington, not the United States government, nobody. The Mormon church, the leadership of the Mormon church, not only thinks that it's above the rule of law, it thinks it is the rule of law. And when it says that it has a right to take in people like Frank Curtis, the most hideous, heinous child rapist that I've ever encountered, and treat him as a sinner, and under our belief system, we believe that no person is above redemption, and that's what we believe, and that's what we hold out. What is the slogan? Uh, we make uh, good men better and you know bad men good or something like bad that. Bad men good and good men better. Joseph Smith, yeah. yes. It's a kind of haughty arrogance, in my opinion, that says that, that you can do something like that, even if it means that you're going to bring predators into them and allow them to roam freely amongst your flock and not warn them and not do anything. You're making a clear statement about where your priority lies. Your priority lies with, with those individuals that uh, you, you think um, you can change through the power of, of redemption and repentance. To somebody like Frank Curtis, who'd spent his life in prison, multiple sentences. This guy was a child rapist. He was, he was an armed robber. Um, a judge in Detroit in 1923 sent him to prison for 50 years. And this guy, he was only like 22 years old. So this guy's beyond redemption. We just, you know, we need, I need to protect the public and get him, you know, off the streets. Well, he got paroled 40 years later. And sometime after that, he found his way into uh, Temple Square, uh, met a, a, a Mormon bishop who converted him to Mormonism. Uh, gave him a bus ticket to Portland, Oregon, and you know, twenty-five dollars in cash, and set him up there, and uh, and uh, and then he he was on his way. Um, most of the abuse that I see in the Mormon Church is not the outsider who comes in, like Frank Curtis, who was not really checked out or vetted before he was put in charge of kids in the Boy Scouts or in primary. Um, it's it's. It's, in, it's internal, it's incest, um, it's Boy Scouts. The, the Mormon Church was the first chartered organization in the Boy Scouts. The Mormon Church Boy Scouting program predates the Boy Scouts of America. We had the young pioneers uh, that go back into the, the, the 1800s. Um, but when the Boy Scouts of America was founded in 1916, the first organization to sign a charter with the Boy Scouts was the LDS Church. So um, the Boy Scouts and the Mormon Church were synonymous. And it was the, you know, as you know, the exclusive youth organization uh, scouting was uh, for the Mormon yes. Church. Boy Scouts was the young men's program, yes. And, um, and so uh, there's a wonderful book. Uh, it's, a, it's a coffee table book or uh, uh, Coca-Cola uh, table book or whatever you want to call it. 
um, picture book of uh, 100 years of Mormons in scouting. Came out a few years ago, and there's some wonderful pictures in there. Of you know, there's Gordon B. Hinckley on a horse when he's 17 years old in 1923, and some of the other prophets and so forth. So, um, so anyways, I. Hey Tim, at this point, can I ask you a couple of questions? Sure. First off, an observation, which is mind-blowing when you think about it. But if you are a member of the church, especially if you're a male, especially if you have the priesthood, which is a lay ministry, so all worthy men above the age of 12 hold the priesthood, especially if you're in leadership. Um, if you molest a child, the church will tend to lean over backward to protect you. But if you criticize a leader of the church, you will find yourself out on the streets and publicly defamed. True. Um, look at the, I don't know if you've ever seen, it's available, uh, the Handbook of Instructions, and it talks, there's a chapter there on discipline, church discipline, you know, and, and they, they rank sin and so forth. And it's, it's interesting in there because it sort of reflects society's values in some respects, like murder, Murder's that's pretty bad. bad. Yeah, Sexual <laughs> that's up there. But you know what the worst one is? Stealing church funds. You know, uh, it's, you know, that's excommunication, baby, and no rebaptism. Uh-uh. You know, you get your, get your hand in the till, you're out. So um, that tells you a lot about what the church values and what it doesn't value. Uh, when it gets down to child sexual abuse, well, it kind of depends. You know, in some circumstances, maybe some informal counseling by the bishop or the state president with the perpetrator, maybe that's good enough. You don't necessarily have to invoke a formal disciplinary court, a stake high counsel. You can, you've got discretion because, of course, you are endowed with the powers of discernment. And, you know, maybe it's not really as bad as the uh, victim has indicated it is. But above all, above all, keep it internal. Do not act in any way that is going to bring embarrassment or shame upon the church. Uh, that is a mortal sin in Mormonism. So um, you, you deal with it internally. They bend over backwards to prevent it from ever seeing the light of day. Uh, if the bishop gets wind of it, which he typically does because he's got a radar system, it's called home teaching, and they report back. Uh, the bishop has worthiness interviews with children and adults constantly. So he is expected to know, and if he's doing his job, knows what's going on inside every home. Uh, and, uh, and so he gets early wind of, of problems. And if it's child sexual abuse, for the longest time, you know, bishops impulsively did the right thing. So they had to be correct. Mm. Because it's like, oh my God, a crime's been committed. I better call the police. No, uh, uh, uh. no, 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 no. Wrong, 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 wrong. So it was interesting. And I, in the documents that I sent to you, we, we don't have time to go through all these, but um, were some pamphlets they sent out. And in the, and it was, they were called helps, funny word, helps 
uh, for ecclesiastical leaders on child sexual abuse. And um, they, were, they were sort of glossy pamphlets. And then, yeah, there you go, responding to abuse. And this one, I think, I don't know if this was the 96 version or the 86 version, but the earlier version sort of said, uh, yeah, you should notify, you should obey mandatory reporting laws and you should notify the civil authorities when you become aware of a, of a, uh, of a, of a child abuse situation. Then, uh, this is the later one, then they came up in the 90s, the early 90s, with this uh, helpline thing, which is, well, we can't expect the bishop to understand what the mandatory reporting laws are in every state, so instead, we'll have him call this 1-800 number, which was only available to cler lower clergy, state presidents and bishops, not available to, to members. Most members are probably not even aware of it. And uh, in the beginning days of it, uh, it would ring into LDS social services, now called what, family services, and there would be a LDS social services worker who would fill the call and would fill out a, a form, an intake form. And I provided this, and this is a, a hot document that I wanted to talk about a little bit tonight. Um, and then um, forward that to Kurt McConkie, and they would review it. Um, that became problematic because now you had a non-lawyer who's in the chain, the bishop, or excuse me, the, uh, the social worker over at LDS Social Services. Um, he's not enshrouded in the attorney-client privilege. If the bishop calls up and speaks to, you know, who's reporting sexual abuse speaks directly to a lawyer, Curtin McConkie, that's all attorney client. And we can't discover that. What did you tell the, what did you tell the lawyer? I, you know, objection, attorney client privilege. So that's one of the devices they use to keep this thing under wraps. Um, uh, but uh, in the first instance, um, and now, as you can see from the bottom of this form, um, the social worker, the intake worker at Tim, are social you looking service. at that, the protocol for abuse? Yes. Yes. Okay. If so you, you want to look at the bottom of the form? Yeah. If you look at the bottom of that, uh, it, it, it's got the names of lawyers at Kurt McConkie and their after hours phone numbers, their cell numbers, their home numbers. And, you know, so this is important. And it's important that if you're, the social services worker, and you get a call, and if you scroll up a little bit, let's look at, let's go up a little bit higher. These are the high risk situations, and they're high risk not because the child is potentially at danger of further abuse, uh, but the church is at further risk of abuse. Does, number one, does your call concern child sexual abuse, which may have occurred on church property? Well, what does that have to do with protecting a child? It has a Number lot two, to do with liability, doesn't it? You bet. Does your call concern child sexual abuse, which may have occurred at a church-sponsored activity? That Those are lawyer questions, mm -hmm. right? Why? Because if it did, the church is potentially liable. Number three, does your call concern child sexual abuse by a church leader or a youth leader who used the church position to account? So these are all, anybody that is a lawyer that litigates tort issues 
you know, we talk about, you know, an act, uh, knowledge, uh, you know, a duty to protect, a failure, and so forth. Are these standards that lawyers bringing that tort lawsuit have to meet? And all of these questions go to potential liability. So when they call it a protocol for abuse helpline calls, yeah, it's a helpline. It's designed to help the church um, prevent a case from exploding into a very expensive litigation. So that was its sole purpose. Um, and this was never meant to fall into the hands of somebody like me. Uh, and it only happened because the intake worker had received a packet of materials from a mother whose children were being abused by their stepfather. And he sat on it and eventually mailed it back to her that he had inadvertently included this form that was not meant to go to her, but was to go to, and, and through, through some sources that eventually ended up coming to me. And it reveals everything about how it operates. It operates to protect the church. It has nothing to do with protecting children. Can, can I just and, add something? Oh, sorry ahead. about that. No, sorry about that. So I just, can I add something really quick, which is, and again, I've got a puppy. He still chews things. I have to keep him with me on my show. My wife goes bowling on Wednesday. So there, folks, now you know the story behind it. And as soon as Bill says that, everybody in the live chat starts saying, show us the puppy. Yeah, he's show down there. The no, we're not going to entertain this. So, um, <laughs> and, and, I've, and I've been muted here for the last 20 minutes and he hasn't had a whimper. But now the moment I take my mic off. So this is the church's website on preventing and responding to abuse. That, that paragraph, the first full paragraph there with the dot, when abuse occurs, the first and immediate responsibility of church leaders is to help those who have been abused and to protect vulnerable persons from future abuse. I just want to note, the church talks out both sides of its mouth, but the actual actions it does are the ones to protect its pocketbook and its own liability. It says that its priority is the person being abused, but as you're pointing out from the very documents when a bishop or a stake president calls the helpline, the real priority is how do we protect the church's liability? Yeah, this is this is like, this is just like straight out of corporate, the corporate world. And this is the problem. The church doesn't think like a church, it thinks like a corporation. It thinks like, it thinks it's Walmart or it thinks it's, you know, some entity. And it's about, you know, remember the scandal with Texaco you know, years ago with the sexual harassment. And I mean, every one of these companies has these. And, you know, at a minimum, whether you enforce them or not, or you follow them or not, you got to have a little booklet that shows, oh, yeah, no, no, no. Because when you get sued and the lawyers demand discovery of your, you know, your policies and practices to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace, then they go to the form booklet. It's like, it's just, it's just the paper that you use to turn over to the lawyers when the time comes. It's not the actual policy. It's not the actual practice. It's just what you do to cover your ass. That's what, that's what it's for. And that's all the church uses it for. So, so they produce this stuff over and over in litigation. And if you sue them for this, that, or the other thing, say, you know, ask for production and, of documents, you're going to see this. And they quote thing. it in their briefs, right? They quote it in their briefing all the time. Oh, yeah, they yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, I, you know, this, I've been doing this since 1996 against the church. I see this over and over again. Um, they have not changed. 
it, their, their, their playbook is the same. It's the same. It's basically this one piece of paper, the protocol. Uh, so um, this is how it works in reality. So um, with me, it's always, it's like a race. I'll get a call. And it's from somebody on the other side of the company. I, country, I'll use West Virginia as an example. I get a call from a parent out there and it involves this Michael Jensen and the parents are now just coming to realize that this perpetrator has molested their children. There's like 13 children that are affected at this point. Um, there have been no arrests, nothing's happened. Um, the next morning I'm on an airplane uh, flying out to West Virginia because I need to get there before Kurt McConkie's lawyers get there. Do you have to and meet I'm the lawyers there, there to beat out a quick and easy settlement? I need to get in and I need to start interviewing these witnesses, including, oh, you were on the stake high council where the perpetrator was, you know, was discussed and involving, you know, incest of his siblings and so forth. And when was that and so on and so forth. And this man's only talking to me because he believes his son may also have been a victim of this same perpetrator. But he's also, you know, a true blue Mormon. And he himself was disciplined for adultery, I guess, and rebaptized in. So he doesn't want to do anything that's going to affect his membership. But he talks openly with me, with me and consents to me recording it. And he, he basically gave it up. So, um, I mean, it wasn't a week later. Or 10 days later, that word got back that there was this lawyer from Seattle who's out there talking to people and interviewing people. Well, they've got Mormon, Kurt McConkie has their lawyers on an airplane, but they're too late. I got there first and I've got the evidence. And that's consistently how I've always beaten them. If you wait and rely on people, I'm going to file my complaint and then I'm going to serve formal discovery on them and I'm going to take depositions and that's how I'm going to build my case. No, you're not. You're going to lose. That's not how you get it. I was a criminal defense lawyer for years. You don't get discovery except what the prosecutor's office gives you, which isn't much. If, if you need to find, you know, an eyewitness or an alibi witness, you better get out there and walk the streets and find them yourself because nobody's going to hand them to you. Civil lawyers are lazy. They think civil discovery is going to give them the, 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 the bullets they need to win their case. Maybe it works in, in a different kind of litigation, but it certainly doesn't work in this kind of litigation against attorneys who will do everything they can to thwart you. And Tim, you're indicating this, but I want you to put a fine point on it for the audience. What is it that happens when the Curtin McConkie attorneys get out there first? Uh, it goes something like this. maybe a hand on the shoulder, or maybe it's a phone call in advance. Brother Jensen, uh, this is Brother So-and-so from Kurt McConkie. And if you don't know who Kurt McConkie is, we're general counsel or we're counsel for the LDS church. Just saying that probably takes the breath away of most people. You know, it's like, oh my God, I'm in trouble. Um, so that's the way it begins. And um, 
And so they want to meet. And so they go out there and maybe it's to prepare them for their deposition that we're going to be taking. And they spend 17 hours over two days preparing this individual uh, for his deposition that me or my co-counselor are going to be taking with him. What do you need 17 hours to prepare somebody for? The truth isn't that hard. Um, but what comes out is, no, I never said that. No, I don't remember that. No, didn't. No, I'm positive I didn't say that. And so we go on and on like this. Well, what this particular individual did was fail to tell the Kurt McConkie lawyers that he had talked to me and that I had, well, he may have told them that he had talked to me, but he didn't tell them that he'd given me permission to record the conversation. So over the span of about a six and a half hour deposition, he perjures himself countless times. And at some point, my co-counsel who's doing the questioning, you know, is asking such precise questions, you know, framed in the actual language that the individual used that the defense attorney for the church leans over the table and says, uh, Mr. So-and-so, do you have a recorded statement of Mr. So-and-so? Yes, we do. And then that's when you get the, you know, oh my God, uh, we're in trouble here. Right. So um, that's, that's what you, you know, you encounter. And I've, um, I've beaten them to the punch. In the Curtis case, I found witnesses in Grand Rapids, Michigan, went out there, you know, uh, interviewed them, got them to sign affidavits and so forth. So when it came time to take their depositions, the church lawyers obstructed and objected. It was too late. It was just too late. And um, but that's how you have to do it time and time again is you have to you have to beat them to the punch. And um, most of the time, I'm too late. Um, they contact me. Well, that's the whole thing, right, about the hotline. I mean, they've got the inside track from the very beginning. They've got the bishop or the stake president calling the hotline, checking the boxes to see if the church is potentially liable. If it is, then it goes to an attorney. And now the attorney's getting all of the information. They could beat you to the punch on almost every case if they wanted to. Do you well, think so? but they don't, but they, but they don't always, I mean, they don't, you know, I mean, this is an interesting question, which is you, um, this form, we wanted them. We wanted all of them. What's the history, you know, not just in this case, but how many of these do you get a week, a month, a day? Cause this all goes to things like pattern and practice knowledge foreseeability of the harm and so forth. Um, they wouldn't even admit that they knew what this document was. No, we've never seen it before. Interrogatory, you know, uh, you know, admit or deny that this is a true and correct form that you used. No, we never used it. We don't. I knew who the, the social worker was that prepared this and was about to serve him with a deposition notice when lo and behold, um, he got sent on a mission to Africa, which is another device that they use. You know, when you zero in on somebody who's a critical material witness, suddenly they're long gone. 
They get a mission they call. A mission. Um, so, you know, the, the, so, uh, but fortunately, I was able to track the woman who had called and sent these papers to this man and who was the original source of this document. Mm -hmm. and she was still in the church and she was scared, you know, that she was going to get on the wrong side of the church. She'd been contacted by the church lawyers and so forth, but she had integrity. And she said, yeah, if I, you know, if I'm put under oath and asked questions, I will tell you everything I know truthfully and as accurately as I can. Um, and this is sort of the dilemma that the church has a lot of times is that its members are good citizens and they understand what an oath means. And, you know, a church lawyer can't intimidate them into bending or shaping their testimony to favor, favor the church. But I've had many instances where they do because they're afraid. Uh, LDS bishops, you know, will, you know, go in front of a jury and testify and deny what this young victim has just testified tearfully to in front of a jury. Testifying and, to the conversation between the victim and the and bishop. I told, I told the bishop, he was coming into my room at night. He did this over and over. I told the bishop there. He told me, you know, it's a good thing you didn't go to the school counselor because the school counselor would have had to report it to the police and your whole family would have been broken up and you all been put in jail and your family would have been bankrupt. And, um, and so, you know, absolutely, you can't tell anybody. I mean, just intimidated this girl. In the law, it's called intentional infliction of emotional distress. It's an intentional tort. It's like assaulting somebody. And we took that to, to a jury. The church, in its arrogance, offered this woman $25,000 before trial. The jury came back with an award of $4.2 million. Um, so this is, this, is the, this is the explosiveness of evidence like this when you can actually get it all the way you know, to a jury, which ain't no easy thing. You know, it's very difficult. And they, they, they erect as many obstacles and force you to jump through as many hoops. And they've got 500 ways to beat you. And you've got maybe one way to make it all the way. And if you can get it to a jury, you know, and you've got the facts and the law. But with the Mormon church, they've got you beat from the outset most of the time because they control these legislatures in the West statute of limitations. I mean, in Utah, where most LDS live, it's it's a dead letter. Um, they have so locked up statute of limitations. They've even got a constitutional provision under the state constitution that makes it impossible for the Utah legislature to ever pass a window to basically open up uh, it. And they've inserted so many other poison pills in the law in Utah uh, that you know, most of the time I get a call from somebody in Utah, I'm just going to say, I, I can't help you. And I don't, I don't think anybody can help in the state of Utah because of the way the church has been able to control the law and the legislature. And even if you were to get the legislature to change the law, they're going to argue that they have a provision called ex post facto, a civil ex post facto uh, provision in the Utah state constitution, which prevents uh, the legislature from going back and retroactively reviving uh, 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 
statute of limitations cases. So, um, Tim, can I can I bump in here for a second? Sure. Now, what you're describing reminds me of the old saying, which is 95% of lawyers give the rest of us a bad name. And what you're describing here over and over sounds an awful lot like witness tampering which is a law which is a, a crime in most states i know it is here it's a felony and you don't get away with it just because you're an attorney you can tamper with the witness as an attorney in fact you're especially well positioned sometimes to tamper with witnesses when you're an attorney and it's something that at least i focus on not doing right if I'm writing up a declaration for a witness, and I do frequently because I can type and you know it's easier for the judge to read and file, I'm always going to ask them, tell me the story, and I'm going to write it down as close as I can. You read it. You make sure I've got it right. We'll change it. We'll work on it so it's their declaration, and then they sign it. And I constantly say, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Let's just try and figure this out and get it down in writing the way you experienced it. It sounds like some of these attor uh, attorneys for Curtin McConkie are not being so diligent in being ethical, if I can put it that way. Well, there's one thing about witness tampering, and there's another question of whether a prosecutor would be willing or capable of proving uh, a witness tampering. I mean, I I think they're about as rare as hen's teeth. Uh, that is, I've never seen one. Convictions for for it, so it's. You know, uh, if you don't get caught, is it a crime? And I, I, it's the only way I could answer it. Um, I, I don't look. I wouldn't look to to the government at any level to protect me or anybody. I mean, the government can't even protect itself, uh, it would seem, after January 6th. So um, uh, if they do get caught up in something, they can pull out their checkbook and make it go away. You know, as soon as you get the goods on them, when you really have them nailed dead to rights, they roll over and they pay and they can do that. And, you know, whether it's a $5 million, $10 million, $25, $50 million check, that's nothing to a multi-trillion dollar entity like the Mormon Church. So they have, I mean, they have almost limitless power. And they astutely have astutely used uh, the First Amendment religious liberty rights enshrined in the Constitution together with state privilege laws, uh, attorney-client privilege, clergy-penitent privilege, and they have so carefully constructed a system to prevent the truth from ever coming forward and if it does find its way into a the legal system, that they can kill it, they can throw armies of lawyers at it, they can throw tons of money, they can outspend lawyers a million to one. And at the end of the day, if they really get cornered, they can always pull out a check and there's almost no victim that can say no to a substantial sum of money when they've been grievously injured they need help. They're, you know, homeless, you know, uh, you know, or maybe if they're not, maybe if they're still stable, um, or maybe they don't care about the money. 
the emotional and psychological toll the process has taken on them um, will grind anybody down. And I don't fault them. And I tell them in advance, you know, I'm telling you, you're telling me that you still believe and you still want to belong to this church. If you go down this path, you will lose your friends. You will lose your neighbors. You will lose your, your faith community. This is not going to be a faith promoting experience when you see how the church through its lawyers treats you and your family. They will contact your ex-wife, you know, everybody, they will, they will, they will make your life so miserable that you'll never do this again. And who can, who, who can withstand that? Most people can't. Um, and so, you know, you, it's just, and particularly now with the court system, so delinquent and delayed, I mean, in Washington state, I mean, we had maybe 18 months, 24 months from filing to your trial date after COVID. It's probably, I don't know what it is now, years. Um, it's just justice delayed is justice denied. So what do you do? You know, you, you know, you, you, you position the case as best you can and you accept something that's far less than what your client deserves and you pat yourself on the back and say, well, I did the best I could. And the reality is that's probably the best you could do. Yeah. Let me let me jump in here and make a couple of comments of ideas that have been coming to my mind. First off, I wanted to clarify what I said about not knowing about people getting charged with tampering with a witness. Of course, I know people who get charged with tampering with a witness. I have represented people who are charged with tampering a witness. And usually it's a poor schmo that I'm representing on some criminal charge who reaches out to some witness and tries to shape their testimony in his or her favor. And bam, they get charged with tampering with the witness. But apparently, um, not everybody gets treated the same way. If you're a lawyer, well, maybe you can get away with it a little bit more, at least if you are of that mind. A second thing I wanted to say is that you mentioned, I think, what should be the epitaph on the gravestone of the Mormon church when eventually it gets buried six feet under. And that is carefully constructed. I tried to jot this down carefully constructed to keep the truth from coming out. And you've described really well how they do that in the legal field with child sex abuse cases. Would it surprise you if they do the same thing on the church side of the ledger with their church history, with their church doctrine, and with the things they teach as truth claims to their members that that same epitaph also applies it's carefully constructed to keep the truth from coming out bill do you think that's a valuable analogy uh, i think the lds church is one 200 year long carefully worded denial <laughs> that's a good one hey tim i want to talk to you now <clears throat> about this um uh that uh protocol that you serendipitously got your hands on and you'd mentioned that this was after there was testimony we've never even seen this before now does nothing happen to attorneys or whoever it is to witnesses saying i've never seen this before and you go well here it is right here does nothing happen to them i know that this is largely up to the judge to make uh what, what am i trying to say to um to govern 
the courtroom in an orderly way so that the law is followed and people are goofing around with discovery that they get sanctioned for it because judges typically don't like people lying to them in court and in cases. What happened as a result of this protocol coming out in the face of denials of even having seen it? Well, this, uh, this came near the end of the West Virginia case where we had the uh, authentication necessary to the testimony of the woman, you know, who was the source of this document. So it was clear this was coming into evidence, but the trial had been going on for almost three months in Martinsburg, West Virginia. Uh, this was a three or four judge county courthouse. And we had, we were on our third judge there. Uh, the first one um, had Alzheimer's and, and had to drop the case. The second one died. And the third one, um, he just didn't like lawyers like me coming into his county and suing churches and taking up his valuable time litigating and trying a case for three months. So to him, this, this, he, he didn't give a damn about this. He just wanted this gone. He, he said, this is the longest trial that has ever taken place in this county. And this is a 150-year-old county. I mean, he, they, judges, with rare exception, and this is another thing where you can have the best case in the world, the best evidence, you know, and you wind up in front of the wrong judge. I mean, he or she can tube you, you know, just because they don't like, you know, they don't like you. And, you know, I'm aggressive. And, uh, you know, I, I I know how to comport myself in a courtroom, but I also, you know, am not good at concealing irritation when a judge makes a boneheaded ruling, you know, gut by case by saying, oh, no, I'm not going to put that evidence in, who, who treats the trial as if the rules of evidence don't exist. And so it's just a free for all. And what's the other side? So to give you one example, I mean, we had hundreds of depositions in that case or over a hundred depositions. And, you know, in a civil case, when you can't or you don't have the ability to call a witness, you can put in their deposition testimony. So you identify what portions of the deposition you want to put in, and the other side can counter-designate. So what the church would do is, I mean, I've got four pages of, of key testimony, but it was a 500-page deposition transcript. We want all of it. So the judge says, okay, fine. So you've got to read 500 pages of a deposition, most of which is meaningless. The jury is sitting there like this, bored to mm -hmm. death, being forced to listen to stuff that you didn't want to put in but your reader is reading all this stuff and the judge is frustrated with you because you're not moving your case along fast enough because the church is pulling these, these tricks uh, to drag the case out, to bore the jury to death um, and turning what should have been a three-week trial into a, if it hadn't settled, probably a five or six-month trial. Um, so this is just another example of how they abuse the system. Um, and... Um, you know, as a person, as a lawyer, 
you know, I, I just turned 70. You know, it's, you know, the human lifespan isn't long enough for a lawyer or a litigant uh, to deal with this church in any meaningful way. You know, we are just little annoying fleas, you know, who nip them here and there. But um, to change the church, I have no illusion. When I was a younger lawyer, I thought that somehow this was going to change hearts and minds. But um, I don't think anything I do is going to change it. I think the members will change. You know, if it's going to change, it's going to have to come from uh, the rank and file. who are going to say, wait a minute, this is wrong. Why are you stockpiling trillions of dollars? Um, why are you taking bread out of the mouths of our children uh, to pile up stacks and stacks of gold? You know, it's not for charitable purposes. Uh, you know, you're completely uh, opaque about how you spend the money. We only hear about it when somebody leaks. So um, I don't get down into the weeds about people's belief systems. I believe people can believe whatever they want. You know, it's I come, you know, from from Jewish people and, you know, the burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea, you know, maybe, I don't know, I don't really care, don't concern myself. People can believe whatever they want to believe. Uh, that's not what's important. It's, it's, it's what do you do and how do you treat people now here on earth? Uh, and, uh, you know, that's what my focus has been, is because there's no way to get at the church any other way. They're, they're immune. Uh, except when it comes to child sexual abuse. They're, this is the only area where they are exposed or they're vulnerable because of their pattern practices. Um, you know, if a Mormon missionary rear-ends somebody on the freeway, eh, you know, uh, the church will roll over and, you know, pay those and they'll deal with, with other things. Um, but none of those cases are going to be threatening to the, to the reputation of the church. These kinds of cases go directly to the heart of whether this is a church at all. I mean, is it? Or is it just a corporation masquerading as a church? Because you know, the same thing could be said about, you know, the Catholic Church in many respects, where money has come to represent more than, I mean, I, you know, it, it's, you know, I actually would kind of appreciate the second coming. And I'd like to hear what Jesus would have to say about what he sees about all these churches today. See, that's you know? what I was going to say. When you're talking about, you think it's more important, not what you believe. You don't care what people believe. You care how they treat other people. There was a crazy guy named Jesus in the New Testament who said something very similar was a thought that crossed my mind. So yeah, be very interested. Of course, Mormons believe when Jesus comes again, by the way, it's April 8th. Do you have that marked on your calendar, Tim? April 8th. This year is the day that Jesus is coming back. And Mormons, and by the way, this isn't a church teaching, right? There are elements of the church who are more fundamentalist than the, even the fundamentalist Mormons, right? So they're on to this last day scenario with a great gusto, and they're preparing for it, and other people outside the religion are too. Anyway, anyway, I just wanted to say this. We're going to have some calls coming in. But I did want to make a comment here and have you address it because you have changed things, maybe not the way the church handles it as far as trying to cover things up, but at least they're talking to you, resolving cases without having you to file lawsuits. 
But when you said that at the beginning of the program, it made me think, number one, we are seeing over and over and over, it seems like an explosion of these types of cases reported in the news. But when you tell me what you just told me, it sounds like there may be a lot more cases that are being resolved legally that never even hit the news. Is that correct? Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, until, uh, first of all, you don't get to read about it in the newspaper until some lawyer files a lawsuit, and then it's in a place where maybe the, you know, the courthouse reporter sees the filing and says, oh, this is interesting, and writes a story about it. Uh, or maybe the lawyer, you know, most lawyers don't issue press releases. I do in cases like this because um, I think they, you know, they are newsworthy. But um, most of them never see the light of day. You never hear of them. Uh, I mean, if you want to go onto the uh, court uh, server and put in Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you know, maybe you can see everything that's been filed against them the last year, two years, five years, you know, but, you know, even to get into those, you know, you got to pay the fees and everything to be able to get access to those documents. So it's not easy to discover that. And, um, and even informal discovery. Uh, so, for example, in the, in the Frank Curtis case, there, was, there were two disciplinary courts and a document that was created as a result called the Report of Church Court Action. You may not know this, but they have a pre-printed form and it's used by a bishop in a bishop's court or a stake president and a stake high council. And, at the, and it looks very much like a judgment and sentence form in like a criminal case. You know, the nature of the charge, the accusation, who was present, who was the presiding person, who were the members of the stake high council, what were the charges, who was the defense counsel or the defense person appointed to represent the individual. Most of the time, these, you know, they're admitted by the perpetrator. But in the, the, the Scott case, um, we were able to get, we wanted all of them, but we got 20 years from two stakes, the Portland stake and the East Portland stake. And there were about 60 of these just for child sexual abuse, not adultery, not, you know, any other church high court. There were 60 of them. Now, we were forced at the end of that case to return them when it settled uh, these documents. But these documents are prepared, are prepared. They are all submitted either electronically or physically to church headquarters. And they're kept, I imagine, in some kind of vault in a mountain in Utah. Uh, and it's, um, it's this repository of all of the evidence. It's like how many Goodyear tire blowouts resulting in fatalities are there at corporate headquarters? You know, uh, you could get them if you sued whatever company for whatever, but you can't get them uh, from the Mormon church anymore because they come in and argue that the form was created as a result of a, a church disciplinary process and therefore is privileged under the clergy penitent privilege and therefore uh, they're shielded and we don't have to produce that. So other than in the, the Scott case, 
back in the 1990s, I've been, never been able to get them again uh, to demonstrate that there were other similar instances, not involving just this perpetrator, but it's important to know that it was foreseeable and we should have been able to get them nationally for a period of 20 or 30 years to demonstrate how pervasive this problem is. Yes. But good luck getting it. And By the way, I know, I'm sorry, I noticed that one of those uh, check boxes on the form has to do with, uh, did you have any knowledge or any foreknowledge about this person acting out in a way that, uh, well, uh, do we have that? Can we put that back up on the screen? It says, um, are you aware, number five, are you aware of previous child sexual abuse or tendency towards sexual abuse by the alleged perpetrator? And that's getting right to what you're talking about. Did you have reason to know that this person was a danger and yet you gave them access to children? Anyway, that's the kind of thing that will create legal liability. That's that's right. And it's important to understand that under the, under the law, um, a church is not responsible for the criminal acts of members um, per se. Uh, the mere fact that an individual is a member of your church or may have even been um, an officer, a bishop, a scout leader, um, in and of itself is not enough to prove your case. It's not what we call respondeat superior, unless that individual was acting in furtherance of the interest of the delivery driver runs you down in the street, you know, because he ran the stoplight, the employer's responsible because he was driving a truck on behalf of the company and, you know, he killed somebody. Um, so we've got that in the law, but when it comes to the intentional criminal acts of uh, individuals, that's not enough to get you across the finish line. You're going to be dismissed on summary judgment. Instead, you have to not, you have to show that the church or its agents knew or should have known of the danger or risk posed by this particular employee or volunteer or what have you, and failed to take action to warn foreseeable victims, children, parents, uh, or uh, prevent in some way. Uh, shouldn't have put them in charge of Boy Scouts. Shouldn't have been letting them taking, take tricks with the Young Men's Association. Should have been taking them out of, you know, taking boys into the bathrooms in the ward hall. Uh, should have, you know, all of these things that a, a, a lawyer will say, these were instances where they knew or should have known. And in a should have known case, you know, it's like, okay, you messed up. You should have known. But evidence of other similar uh, acts go to prove that you really should have known because you'd known that this was a problem and this was happening and you didn't take corrective measures to prevent it. But when you get into a case where you actually knew about this perpetrator, you knew he had problems, you documented it because there was a disciplinary court or there was some sort of communication or we've got witnesses that say, I told the bishop, I went and the bishop wouldn't do anything. I went to the state president. And then lo and behold, this individual molests some other kids years later. And you find that individual, that's a, that is a, that's a, that's a strong case. So uh, these are the ways in which the church exposes not just its members to an unreasonable risk of harm, but the church itself, its reputation, its finances, 
Um, I don't think members can be happy with the fact that their tithing monies, which are dear to them, are being spent in defending these cases, um, in paying out awards and settlements for situations that wouldn't have occurred if these bishops had been properly trained and instructed, if the church had followed the laws as they're supposed to, instead of adhering to their own belief system that they have a First Amendment right to, to recycle child molesters in the name of forgiveness of sin, which is at the core what they believe in, what they, what they, what they do, and which they're not going to give up. And which leads me to believe that the Mormon church is ultimately, you know, just a big boys club. And the benefits of membership are is that you can come in, do pretty much whatever you want. And if you get caught, the church won't turn you into the police and they won't turn you out. And they may slap your hand and they may limit or revoke your church privileges for a while. But in the case of Frank Curtis, they rebaptized him back in less than a year. So it's, it's a revolving door for a certain kind of criminal. I don't know if they do this with other kinds of criminals. They do it with burglars and robbers and so forth. But um, they, uh, they will turn over. I mean, I've seen examples of this. If you steal from the church, they'll turn you over to the police in a New York minute. You rape a child? No. Oh. They'll, you know, they'll counsel you, you know, and, and you notice on here, too, where they talk about encourage the perpetrator. To Are notify, you on the protocol as well? Yeah, to, to encourage the perpetrator to notify uh, the uh, the police or the public authorities. But before you remember, is that a particular right, number you're referring to? We've no, got it on the screen. Too. Um, OK, yeah, we're at the bottom here. Uh, it's the first bolded part of a priesthood leader recommends that a perpetrator report the abuse to civil authorities. He should also recommend to the perpetrator that he or she should consider obtaining legal counsel first. Now, you've been around uh, enough courthouses uh, and lawyers to know that, uh, you know, if a client comes to you and says, my bishop says I should go and confess to the police, you say, no, you're not going to do that. You, have, you know, you have your Miranda rights, you have your right to remain silent. And my legal advice is that you not give a statement, you not turn yourself in, you not report. Yet this is how the church claims that it's helping children because it's encouraging the perpetrator to turn himself in, but before that, to lawyer up. Is there any place on there? I know the answer, but I got to ask the question anyway, Tim. You know how it goes. Is there any place on the protocol that encourages the victim to get legal counsel? No, no. Um, the the discussion on here, but also in, in the the helps, uh, there's a, a paragraph in there where they talk about the the bishop should try and get somebody, you know, the victim, a friend, uh, a, you know, a relative, uh, to report it to the civil authorities. You know, but the first responder, the person that got the information first from the victim, the bishop or the state president, he's not supposed to do it. He's not supposed to get involved. He's supposed to encourage somebody else 
they talk so much about confidentiality. Well, what happens to confidentiality when you're telling a person or, or the bishop is supposed to tell somebody that doesn't know for the purpose of that individual notifying the civil authorities? So the bishop hears from a victim, uh, ooh, well, um, I better talk to your mother or I better go to somebody that knows you and tell them something that they don't know, which is obviously very sensitive to you as the victim and encourage them to report. But what do they know? They, they didn't receive the information directly. They heard about it, you know, perhaps from the bishop. So they do everything they can to avoid the individual representing the church from getting involved in the legal system at all. And, um, and it's a big ask because I think particularly younger generations of bishops, they feel terribly conflicted about this. They know what their civic responsibility is. And yet they also know intuitively, if nothing else, that if they freelance and go to the police without clearing it first, with the state president or better yet the church's law firm in salt lake city they're probably not going to be a bishop for very long and they may not be a member of the church for very long um because they violated rule number one which is do nothing to bring embarrassment or scandal to the church that's priority number one so they do everything they can they twist themselves into pretzels to prevent the reporting of abuse. And the Arizona case, the Bisbee case, you know, to me that, I mean, that was, there was nothing new or surprising about that case. Um, and there were ways that that could have been handled. I mean, even if you accept the argument that the bishop didn't have any choice, he had to, he had to honor the privilege, and he couldn't report. Um, yes, he could have. You pick up the phone and you say, uh, I can't give you my name, and I have information. I can't disclose the source, but I have reason to believe that these children may be at risk of, of abuse. And these are their names. And you call CPS. And you can do that. You can report anonymously. And it's called, you know, it, there's mandatory reporting, but every one of these statutes says that you can voluntarily report. And if you do it in good faith, you cannot be held civilly liable. You cannot be re held responsible, criminal or otherwise, unless, you know, you do it maliciously, then maybe you can. But um, there was nothing that prevented this bishop from getting this reported. He didn't have to disclose the communication, who the communication was with, what the communication was, all he's saying is, I have reason to believe that children may be at risk. Then CPS gets involved. They do a, uh, you know, an in-home visit. Maybe they get the kids and interview them, make observations, and maybe they find out that this is an abuse situation. They remove the children and protect them. But the church doesn't want that. You know, the whole reason they 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 acted the way they did was to prevent. Uh, it from ever seeing the light of day. 
and if children continued to be raped by their father, their stepfather, that was not their primary concern. No, not at all. So my they bottom line care. is, my, my bottom they line is, is, you know, I, you know, this would be despicable conduct. I mean, uh, I mean, this is the sort of stuff that the Sackler family got away with. This is what criminal corporations do. This is, I mean, this is, this is indefensible. Um, and when a corporation does it, you know, hopefully they get smacked and hard. But if it's the Mormon church, they can hide behind the First Amendment and all these various privileged defenses that they can use to enshroud them in these legal protections that make it almost impenetrable to get at the truth. And if you do get the get at the truth through your own efforts, you're probably not going to be able to bring a case because of the statute of limitations, or they're going to be able to contend that the bishop really didn't know. And you've got to prove that. They call it the lying bishop defense. And they'll push this thing all the way through, and they'll put this poor guy up on the stand, and you can just tell by the perspiration that's pouring down his face that he knows. I mean, he's so terribly conflicted. He doesn't want to get sideways with the church, but he knows he's lying under oath, which he knows is wrong. Can I just say that regardless of why this is, we are left with the spectacle of the LDS church, number one, claiming to be the only true and living church of Jesus Christ upon the face of the earth, and number two, twisting themselves into pretzels in order to protect child molesters who are members of their church, who are even molesting their own children. And by that I mean, they're protecting child molesters who are Mormons, who are molesting children who are Mormons. This is the situation and how bad it's gotten. Am I wrong in that, Tim? No, you're not. And, you know, it's I, I've taken depositions of their um, uh, of their insurance people, uh, of their, uh, I mean, they've got a department of 250, 300 people that handle, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a modern risk management organization. Mm -hmm. uh, they analyze all kinds of risks. You know, what are the risks associated with automobile accidents and automobiles driven by missionaries and you know, all different kinds of things. I mean, they're very sophisticated. They've got the money, the talent, they know how to analyze risk. They bring in professionals. So when I asked two successor, two successive risk management directors about, have you done any studies on the extent of child sexual abuse within the Mormon church? No. Um, how many claims do you get? We don't know. Uh, do you know how much money you pay out uh, for sexual abuse claims? Uh, no, we don't really, we don't really track that. Uh, you know, just all the things that you would do if you really cared uh, to reduce the risk, they don't do. And then I ask the ultimate question, well, why don't you do that? You know, you've got all these degrees in risk management and lecture and, you know, you're an expert in all of this. Why don't you do this? Well, because we consider child sexual abuse to be within the exclusive province of the teachings of the prophet. And um, he decides whether what the church is doing is adequate to protect children. I said, well, okay. So, so it's basically what the, what the prophet says is that's, he's the boss, so that goes, right? Yeah. So um, 
but you have no idea whether what the church is doing, and I've shown you some of these documents, is actually effective. Uh, I can't say. Well, good luck trying to get the deposition of the prophet. Um, you know, you, you just end up with somebody else who, who's going to tell you he doesn't know. Right. Um, and the, the prophet doesn't know. You know, he's got more important things to worry about, apparently. Than child sex abuse in his own church, yes. So that's that's the dilemma. I mean, it's like it's, not calling it the Mormon church, Tim. That's what's important. That's what God is concerned about and giving revelation to his prophet on. Don't call the LDS church the Mormon church. And meanwhile, when it comes to child sex abuse in the Mormon church, they're ringing the dinner bell. And, and Tim, I don't know that you know this, and I'm going to jog RFM's memory. He'll know right away as soon as I say this, but so. he has pursued cases in the past where the church has utilized its own police department at BYU oh, yeah. to do things unethically. In other words, the church pulling the strings on a state police department. And so RFM went through a multi-year uh, appeals process to try to get records to show that they had done that. There was an appeal board that finally had the chance to see the documents. And just as you're saying, what the church did was it had lawyers take care of all the middleman conversations, allegedly, to the point where when RFM is in the appeals process and he has this recorded, the appeal board who sees the document says, to the extent, two or three of them remark, man, this would be damning if this came out, but unfortunately, this is attorney-client privilege and we will not be able to release this. But the appeal board noticed that the information that was in those documents was damning to show that the church had, in fact, manipulated a state police department. Yeah, I got him um, to the point where there was at least an in-camera review of them by the board. So they got to see what was in there, but they would not release it. And they did make some interesting comments about that. At least one did that I recall, like, wow, this is pretty bad stuff, but it's not going to come out because attorney-client. Anyway, Tim, it's been so great that you're here. What I would really like to do is open the phone lines. It's 662-667-6667. The three sixes in a row are purely coincidental. It's what happens when you punch in the word Mormons into your dial. And we'll wait for it to come around again. Uh, yes, yeah, 666 is contained in the word Mormon, believe it or not. So join the call-in portion of the show. Call 662-667-6667 or 662-MORMONS with an S. Call in the show if you have a question for Tim Kosnoff because he is the expert on this subject. Um, I really appreciate everything you've done. Honestly, I've got so many more questions for you that uh, we've been going at this for an hour and 35 minutes now. I could keep you here till midnight if you were kind enough to allow me to, but I won't do that. I will not do that. I mean, let me just tell you one, one of the things. I don't want you to respond to it, okay? Because this will take another hour, unless you want to. I'd like to get your take at some point on what the heck's going on over there in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, with the state president getting charged with failing to report. Can you do that in a in three minutes? Uh, well, I haven't followed the case that closely, but I can tell you from experience that it's very, very rare to see a bishop or a uh, state president uh, get criminally prosecuted. Uh, in Utah, when that's happened, and it has happened in the past, generally, uh, 
Kurt McConkie has intervened and those charges have been dropped. Um, you know, if you're a county prosecutor in, in Utah and you get a call from Kurt McConkie um, and the case, you know, it's, we assure you we're gonna talk to that bishop, uh, it won't happen again, blah, 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 and the case just goes away. Um, I have no confidence in the civil uh, authorities in in Utah. Uh, I had an experience with a prosecutor down in Provo County uh, who talked to me candidly. And then when the church found out about that, he got leaned on and he was a senior prosecutor. And he got in a whole lot of trouble because he had provided information out of the perpetrator's criminal file from a prior uh, incident. Mm. And, um, and he got squeezed so hard by his boss that um, he submitted affidavits on behalf of the church, which were along the lines of uh, denying what he had told me and claiming that the church had really been, you know, an exemplar in combating the combating child sexual abuse. And they purported to want it. They listed him as an expert witness on behalf of the church to come in and testify about what a great job the Mormon church does in protecting children. So mm -hmm. these, so many of these, these uh, public officials, um, even if they're not, and this, this follow this prosecutor was, he was from back East. He was Catholic. Um, but you know, it, it's, you know, the Mormon church rules and, you know, they get their way. So we'll see what happens in Pennsylvania, but the stretch, the influence of the Mormon church extends uh, far and wide. It's not just in the mountain West. And you may see this case disappear. Wouldn't surprise me. Hmm. Um, Jim, we, can we have a question that's on the screen? And I'm going to read it, then I'm going to take my crack at answering it, and then I'll throw it to you, okay? The question right. that's on the screen comes from John Bystrom. Ask Brother Kosnoff, brother, he is not a brother. He is no brother of mine. No, he's never been a member of the LDS Church. I'm just saying that so everybody understands. No, Tim has never been a member of the LDS Church, and the prospects for him getting baptized are looking kind of slim at this point. So he's coming at this, never been a member, has no axe to grind. He's not an anti-Mormon. But having said that much, ask Brother Kosnoff if he can give a yes or no if any of the 12, including Dallin H. Oaks, have settled any child abuse cases. My answer would be, well, no. That's what they have a legal department for. So, of course, the apostles don't settle the cases. On the other hand, the legal department represents them. So, in a sense, every single child sex abuse case that has been settled is settled by them indirectly. I, yeah. What I are your thoughts too, on that, Tim? Can I just say really quick before yeah. he answers, I think also what he might be asking is if any, if any, if there's ever been a legal issue with the 12 or the top 15 themselves, in other words, they committed oh. some sort of abuse and have had to settle uh, child abuse cases. Again, I, I won't drop names cause I can't, but RFM and I are both aware of one apostle who is connected to an abuse situation. Uh, oh, and, right. and we can't speak to, but we both heard the story, uh, again, from the person who was directly involved, who was serving as a leader at the time. Um, but I, I can't do that. So I guess the, his, I think maybe that comment means did the top 15 ever have an abuse case themselves that was being dealt with? 
Okay, so Tim, can you answer it either way, with either interpretation, mine or Bill's? Sure. Um, I, I think yours is the right answer, RFM. Um, uh, they let their lawyers uh, handle these cases by and large. But sometimes, and there have been instances where they do in some of these cases, not that I've been directly involved in, but they do reach up where it may be a relative of a general authority that's uh, it's implicated. Uh, or, um, you know, I've never heard of a general authority being directly accused of child sexual abuse or child sexual abuse concealment. Uh, I think those cases probably get resolved long before lawyers get involved. Um, but I will, what I can say is, and this is based on experience, that when the price of a settlement gets above a certain number, uh, that the attorney, the senior attorney from Kurt McConkie has to go up to the president's office and get authority from the president to write a check that big. Uh, pretty rare it happens. Most of the time, I think that Kurt McConkie has settlement authority up to a certain number. And if he needs more money, goes to the general counsel. And then the general counsel, perhaps with that attorney, goes in and sees the president and explains why it is that they have to spend that much money to resolve this particular case. Um, beyond that, I, I can't say. I mean, I, I uh, the, is, from my perception, the hierarchy is very well insulated, and um, they don't want they don't want them involved because as soon as they start getting involved, then there's some lawyer that's going to be able to persuasively make the case that they're entitled to take the deposition uh, of of that uh, president or first consular or quorum of the twelve because they've been directly involved in the past in deciding issues related to the very issues that are involved. In their case, so I think that they're, 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 you know, it's purposeful. Um, are, they, are, are, are these issues discussed uh, at the very top? I would have to think so. Um, when they come up with new protocols, when they redraft or rewrite portions of the handbook of instructions, I believe the president has to sign off on that. So these issues, um, you know, have to be. Uh, known to the highest echelons of the, of the church, but I think they purposely stay out of the fray uh, yes. to protect themselves. Most of us call that plausible deniability. Bill Real, however, has a unique take on that expression. What is that, Bill, again? I, I have accidentally called it deniable plausibility. So there we go. Multiple times he said that accidentally, yes. Multiple but as times. more and more of these cases come forward, it gets harder and harder. Uh, because, you know, I don't know, it just doesn't cut it. What uh, I mean, you're the president of the church. You have absolute authority over everyone and everything that goes on in this church. And if this is a widespread problem, and you're not even aware of how widespread it is, why is that? And what have you done? But, you know, is somebody going to stand up at a general conference and, and shut down, uh, you know, the president or a a member of the quorum of the 12? No, that's not going to happen. So nobody ever has the opportunity to speak to these individuals. Right. Uh, and, you know, they're they're cloistered 
you know, in their own private little world and social circles. And, and uh, you know, as near as I can see, it's, it's like, you know, it's easier to get access to the Pope than it is the president of the Mormon church. Yeah. He's visited the Pope. I don't think the Pope has visited him. <laughs> By the way, it's perfect because have you ever heard the expression Nelsonian knowledge, Tim? I had never heard that before until a couple of weeks ago, some listener pointed it out to me and they were wondering, I think they were explaining it to me, but President Nelson, Nelson, Nelsonian knowledge, it's not based upon him. It's based upon, oh, Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson. And the idea, the story is, is that he held a, uh, what, a telescope up to his blind eye and declared that there were no ships. He could see no ships on the ocean when it was full of ships, right? So the it. idea has come to be referred to as uh, willful not knowing. It's a, in other words, it's right in front of your face, but you're saying you don't know it because it would hurt you to know it. And nobody believes that you don't know it because it's so obvious that you would have to know it. And ironically, it was named Nelsonian Knowledge for Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson. But now we've got President Nelson, who's probably doing the same sort of thing. Well, we and this, raises, this raises the question, too, about, you know, why does, why does this happen? Why does this happen in so much in organizations like the Mormon Church? although conceitedly you know, it's elsewhere, but there's no accountability, um, none. Uh, if you're a corporation, you know, uh, the CEO is answerable to the board or to the, uh, and the board is answerable to the shareholders. Uh, in, in our system, you know, our elected leaders are at least in theory accountable, you know, to the voters, to the electorate. So there's, there's some built-in measures of accountability in the Mormon church, there's no accountability, none. Uh, you don't get to vote on who the president's going to be. You don't get to vote on anything. It's not a democracy. And so uh, why would you expect people to change when they have no, no reason, no impetus to change? They're human beings. They're fallible. They won't admit that, but they're fallible and they make mistakes and they have grossly mismanaged this issue and continue to do so. But what's going to get them to change? You know, and I think ultimately it's members can vote with their feet. They can leave. Um, I, I don't believe this organization. I don't believe this organization. I believe in, 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 the, in the teachings, but I don't believe in the leadership. And that's required of me. As a member, that I have to, I have to swear that I believe that, you know, what the leaders tell me is true. And but it's the only thing you have to believe as a member. It is the only thing you have to believe, is that the leaders and President Nelson are prophet seers and revelators. It's the only requirement, and it's the only thing that if you don't believe it, that's the cardinal sin. Well, I'm asking listeners I to believe this. Leaders of the church. Even if the criticism is true, it's oh, wrong to criticize. It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. Well, I would say to members: believe this: your children are at risk. You're at risk. Your families are at risk if you stay in this church uh, because they they believe what they believe. They're not going to change, and this 
adherence to, you know, the powers of forgiveness, of repentance and salvation from sin. Yeah. Mormons didn't invent that. That's been in theology predating the Old Testament. Um, but it has never been used, at least to this extent, as a rationale for recycling violent child rapists into positions where they can continue to have access to children or to shield uh, abusive parents uh, from the civil law. Uh, they've taken it to such an extreme that it they've warped, they've deformed uh, the, the, the doctrine, the religious belief, which, you know, I believe, you know, that, you know, forgiveness, you know, that forgiveness is not for the perpetrator, it's for the, the person who was, who was violated, but they can only do it on their own timetable and when they're ready. Um, and to force or you know, pressure victims to forgive, that they have this duty to forgive. Uh, the way this book, uh, The Miracle of Forgiveness by Spencer Kimball, has been used like a, a club to batter victims uh, into silence. Um, you know, you have a duty to forgive. And, you know, this is, this is also just bled into the, the culture, into the, into the water system of the church, where if you complain about an, a member who's abused your family, or abused your children, you'll be ostracized by your fellow brothers and sisters in the ward um, to the point where you may have to leave the church or go to a different ward um, where you, your family, your child who've been victimized are now treated like the criminal while the criminal is treated like the victim. They've just mm -hmm. taken everything and turned it on its head. And again, it's why? I mean, even if you've got this crazy belief system in this, that you can use this doctrine of, of uh, forgiveness um, from a business point of view, it's not good business because you're going to lose people. People are going to fall away from the church. They're going to leave. You're going to lose tithe payers. You know, you're going to get sued. You're going to, you're going to, if you know, you're going to pay that lawyer and his client X amount of dollars, but you're also going to spend millions of dollars on your own lawyers defending these cases. And when they go out and hire defense lawyers, Kerr McConkie doesn't defend these cases. They're not trial lawyers. Um, they go out and hire the biggest, baddest law firm in New York, Washington, DC, Boston, Chicago, you know, wherever, whatever venue they're in. And these lawyers charge a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars an hour and bill millions. I mean, the happiest day I've ever, you know, I, one of these big firm lawyers gets is when he gets a call from Randy Austin at Curtin McConkie, who says, we want to refer this, this child sexual abuse case. I mean, they high five around that office because he knows that the Mormon church, whatever you think about it, and whatever you're going to be expected to do okay. to defend the church, they pay their bills. <laughs> yeah. And you can yep. bill whatever you want. The church doesn't care. They just want you to demolish Kosnoff and any other lawyer that, you know, has the, the, the audacity to bring these cases against them. And that's what they do. And that's why they're successful in snuffing out most of these cases. That's why you don't read about them or hear about them. The Tim, word is got, 
I'm sorry, Tim, we've got Maven who's made an yeah, appearance. Sorry. If she makes an appearance, it's generally because she's got something <laughs> that she wants to say, a question she wants to ask. So go ahead, Maven. And after you're done, can we line up maybe three phone calls if we have any on the line, Bill? So we won't go too far over so, two hours. This is not more yeah. stories. No, this is just real quick. Manageable. <laughs> I, I just wanted to um, address one of our usual critics who was on last week. And I just, I kind of blocked him. He's been blocked on multiple platforms, but not all of them. There was one he was still on. And Dan Hardy uh, has an unfortunate tendency to kind of gaslight uh, these kinds of things uh, whenever people talk about ways that they've been victimized by the church. I, he's one that will minimize that. And he was doing that last week, um, you know, with the forgiveness thing saying, well, hold on now, who's telling victims of child abuse that they have to give their abuser? And it was just so frustrating to me because there's so much out there that if if Dan Hardy was willing to actually look into any of these things or listen, he could learn for himself how prevalent it is. But instead, he uh, chooses to just put this accusation out there and try to pretend that this is not a thing that's happening or it's a one off or it's, you know, it, all the normal excuses that people give. And um, and I, I guess so I just banned him from whatever platform that was that he was on. And uh, I, I hope maybe you were listening today, Dan Hardy. And uh, again, I mean, this was just a little bit on that. This <laughs> Tim, I think, knows what he's talking about way more than you do when it comes to this kind of stuff. And I hope you'll be open to listening to more stories where this is incredibly common. Just for well, you, Dan. You know, That's all I have. You know, it's like you can dismiss me. I mean, you know, I'm just a self-interested lawyer, and you know, okay, fine. Uh, but you know, there were there've been studies done. There've been this has been documented now for decades. Uh, I don't know if you know Martha Beck. Uh, she was the daughter of uh, uh, Hugh famous Mormon historian, apologist, however you want to characterize what he said and wrote. But um, you know, she. And her colleagues at uh, Brigham Young, when she was on faculty there, uh, did a, a study and interviewed 71 Mormon women. This was back in the 80s and 90s, and wrote this uh, uh, this uh, article that appeared in the Journal of Social Work uh, in 1996. And you know, these women, and granted, it's not. A huge sample, but it was it wasn't meant to be a quantitative study, but a qualitative study. Um, repeated the same thing over and over: the pressure to forgive. Uh, the the uh, it was about the interviews concerned their encounters with LDS bishops and clergy following their abuse, and how they encountered, you know, denial, disbelief, um, you know, this pressure to forgive, um, and. You know, there, there have been uh, well-known uh, Mormon writers and commentators uh, who have also uh, written about this, um, the pressure to forgive. You know, it's a real thing. Uh, I didn't make this up. Uh, if you go back and just do an Internet search, uh, Marion Smith wrote a number of articles on this. Um, you know, if you, you know, I wish some of the counselors and psychologists that treat some of these victims in Utah uh, would speak up and write up more about what they're hearing and the kind of experiences they're having. Um, they've been interviewed, and there's so there's anecdotal uh, evidence of that. Uh, 
in the case of Martha Beck and her colleagues, you know, they thought they were doing a service to the church. So when they presented this study uh, to the church, the church just came out of a press event, denied it, uh, rejected it. Uh, they tried it, tried it out uh, uh, a number of people from LDS Social Services, uh, Von Keach from Curtin McConkie, uh, who denied it, uh, claimed that nobody does more to prevent child sexual abuse than the church. And it's just yada, yada, yada. And every time there's a lawsuit or anything that appears in the article, I guarantee you, when you read the article, there'll just be the same boilerplate response from the church's public relations department. It's I've like seen it over and over. Paste. It's the same thing over and over again. You know, in Tim, there is a incredible. I'm sorry. Make unsubstantiated assertions that they're, they're the gold standard that nobody does more, and it's utter bullshit. Um, so if, if it's not bullshit, prove me wrong. Show me the data. Show me the proof. I'm an empiricist. You can convince me. But since you have it, and since you won't, and since you just hide behind obfuscation and lies, then I have to assume that what I found out is true. It is accurate. This church is a magnet for pedophiles. Why? Because they protect them. They recycle them. And if you want to expose your children and your family to that kind of a system, that kind of culture, well, then you have to look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself what kind of parent you are. There is a dichotomy here, by the way, very well said. And I'm glad we got you on the record as saying bullshit, not once, but twice, Tim. So the dichotomy here is this, which you may or may not know, but all Mormons know it. First off, the dichotomy you've talked about, which is the, the pressure put on victims of child or just sex abuse or sexual assault to forgive the uh, the perpetrator. And it's very real. And I think that, uh, I think it was Richard Scott touched on that in his infamous talk in General Conference about this need to forgive as well as accept your own responsibility for the, the abuse. But on the flip side of that, Tim, is that in Mormon theology, the salvation theology, the soteriology in Mormonism is very works heavy. And in fact, it is taught that we have to do everything that we can do to obey the commandments before the grace of Jesus Christ will kick in to cover up the difference. So on the one hand, when it's our relationship with God, we have to uh, blood, sweat, and tears it all the way in the hope that we've done everything we can do so we can merit that salvific grace and pump us up number one in the celestial kingdom when the time comes. But when it comes to being a victim of another Mormon who's abused you sexually, they don't have to do anything before you're being pressured to forgive them. It's a it's an incredible dichotomy that goes on here. Had you ever thought of that thought of that before, Tim? Well, I have, and and you know, this was the one thing that stuck with me all these years. Um, was in the argument on summary judgment that the church's lawyer, Stephen English, with Bolivenhauser Law Firm, uh, made to the court. And I, I want to quote him because um, I've never forgotten it. Um, he said, quote, the church punished him, Curtis, under church law. He was forgiven, he repented, and he was rebaptized. And the church believes 
that he becomes a new person and you start from there. After the church disciplined Curtis, Curtis repented for his sin. A rebaptism can cleanse a person of his previous transgressions and in the eyes of the church, all can be forgiven. I don't know if, if that's the doctrine you're referring to, but I, 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 was, I, I couldn't find it anywhere in, in church theology that says anything quite like that, uh, that um, this whole idea of a person is um, who's repented is, is, is relieved of all their previous transgressions in the eyes of the church, all can be forgiven. And then I think he even went on to refer to it as the clean slate doctrine, clean slate doctrine. So I went back and, and, and Googled everything I could in Mormonism to find the yeah. clean slate doctrine. And I never could find anything that came close to that. I've never and heard of it. Heard Everything but, you said but, before, but yeah, I've heard. Everything his argument before, here was that that's why the, the case should be dismissed was because they were, by, by forgiving Curtis and recycling back into positions, Boy Scout leader, primary, and so on and so forth, we could, he could reoffend. that that was part of their religious belief system and they had a right to practice that belief system and the courts lacked this, the the authority, the power under the First Amendment to sanction them by way of a verdict um, uh, for engaging in these practices, which of course we argued, you can believe whatever you want, but you know, it's like the Aztecs, you know, uh, you can believe in ritual murder, but if you practice it, that's murder. So, uh, and we can send you to prison for that. But here, this was something and they put this in their pleadings, and they still believe it to this day. And that they equate with forgiveness and repentance, this clean slate concept, with the idea that that means that they are then, the church is absolved from any responsibility for recycling this person back into positions where they can have access to children. And I think this is the core of the problem. That is a crazy ass position. And I think that that is a position the lawyers took because it sounded like something they thought the judge might buy off on. Because are you that naive? Do you really think that the First Amendment gives churches the right to knowingly or recklessly expose their children to child molesters that they have put in positions of authority? I don't think that's what the First Amendment stands for. I don't either, but I believe that there are true believers uh, you know, within the church and, and in their the, the Curtin McConkey law firm that absolutely believe that. I know that Von Keech believed that. This was this was actually not written by this non-Mormon lawyer. This was this was produced by Von Keech, who was lead counsel. Uh, you know, was the you know he clerked for Scalia. You know, he believed he believed in this stuff. And he argued and believed that the church could, you know, it was not subject to a sanction for, for doing this because they were merely practicing their faith and a court had no authority to intervene. These kind of arguments can carry, uh, can carry the day before some judges in some parts of the country. Um, you know, 
I, I mean, I heard a judge say once, you know, in a Southern drawl, well, I don't think it's right that, you know, you shouldn't ought to be able to sue a church. It's like, I mean, there, there are judges and a lot of people that believe that you shouldn't be allowed to sue a church, even if they engage in conduct that if any other person engaged in would be subject to criminal or civil liability. So, um, I know they want to cram in every bad thing that they do under the rubric of practicing our religion so they can try and claim that First Amendment brass ring uh, protection. But doing it in such a way is just breathtaking to me that they would go to such lengths on such an issue to try and frame it as this is us practicing our religion. And shame on Von Keech. Shame on him. Um by the way, Tim, apparently we've got very patient callers, at least the ones that have hung on since the first time I read that number that has the 666 in it. Can we get to a couple yep. of calls here and then we'll call it a night? Yep. Okay, Bill. Bill's yeah, in I'll, charge of the, the call-in line. And I just want to note before I turn to the calls, how many of what percentage of the judges in Utah are Mormon? Uh, we know that the population is somewhere around 50%, maybe a little less, I think, based on most recent data, but the what came out was that nine out of 10 legislate, uh, uh, I'm using the wrong term, but nine out of 10 politicians in Utah are, are Mormon. And so at least inside the state of Utah, it really does have influence far beyond what a religion should. Uh, so police can departments. Can I tell a brief anecdote on that one? There was a okay. time in the early 2000s uh, mm -hmm. after the Scott case where I actually thought that I could bring cases successfully in Utah. And a lot of people were calling me and so I did. And um, so I brought one that had the best prospect in Salt Lake County. And the church brought a motion for summary judgment. The judge that we drew was an African-American Buddhist. I thought, you know, I thought the gods had smiled on me. You know, non-Mormon judge, I've got a Buddhist, I've got a shot here. And he was very cordial, he was very polite. He basically said, Mr. Kosnov, I understand your arguments. I think they have a lot of merit, um, but I'm going to deny, I'm going to grant the church's motion, but um, you appeal me to the Utah Appellate Court or Supreme Court, and I get reversed. Come back here. I promise you I'll give you a fair trial. Oh, I mean, thanks, Judge. What he was telling me was, I'm not risking my career, my position on the bench, uh, in this state to help out some lawyer from another state bring a case like this wow. against the Mormon church in Utah. Ain't going to happen. Yeah. So goodbye, good luck. I, you know, I, I took that as, you know, that I was wasting my time and money. Mm -hmm. We did appeal. We went up to the Supreme Court. We lost. And um, I haven't been back there to Utah to litigate cases in Utah, nor will I. Because yeah. uh, it is, it's a lost cause. I think you yeah. brush the dust of Utah off your feet. Yeah, it's it's an unfair advantage with the legislature. It's an unfair advantage with uh, at least Provost Police Department. It's an unfair uh, advantage with uh, the judges, as you pointed out. I mean, just it, it goes so far. The biases that happen at the universities, if a student loses his testimony, he is expelled from BYU and he loses all the credits he's worked for simply for belief. There's so many angles which the church can manipulate and nudge people 
to do what it wants to do or get them out of the way. Um, all right, so first caller here, I believe, is uh, Nathan. Uh, Nathan, thank you very much for holding. Uh, you're on Mormonism Live. Hi, how are you all doing? Really good. Good. I, uh, you know, I want to just start by thanking um, Mr. Kosnoff for coming on. This has been great. Um, you and your clients are, are heroes for uh, bringing, uh, you know, bringing these things to light and for getting some some small measure of justice. So thank you for for your time for that. Um, uh, I do have a, a question. It came up when I was looking at the at the Pennsylvania case. Um, and it, it, it is more of a general question, but there's a there was a note in at least one of the news pieces that the the victim of the abuser had confessed to um, a bishop. And I guess my you know my question is, is you know with regard to mandatory reporting laws in general, if, if a bishop gets a confession from a victim, are they able to go to the police with that even if there are some uh, you know clergy penitent privileges around and uh an abuser yeah very good question and i'm glad you give me an opportunity to clarify that point um a confession is what takes place between a perpetrator a sinner and his clergy person a communication from a victim about their victimization to a bishop is a disclosure, it's a report, it's a complaint. That is not protected by the clergy penitent privilege. But the church, this is another way that the church um, so warps and expands these uh, privileges to apply to situations that they clearly don't. This is a child or, or a parent or somebody going to a bishop because that's what people are conditioned to do in the Mormon church, is to take their problems to the bishop. Um, but the the church will argue that, well, it may not be a confession, but it's a confidential communication. Well, you may think it's confidential and you may treat it as confidential, but the clergy penitent privilege is very narrow and it's very specific. And, but the church will push back and argue that their interpretation of uh, confession uh, extends beyond that. So, uh, I once had a deposition that I took of a, of a bishop to just to show you how ridiculous this gets. So, Bishop, you're saying that any communication that any member has with you, no matter what it is, no matter how innocuous, that that's confidential and therefore privileged. Yes. So if I'm a member and I say to you, hey, Bishop, that's a nice new car you've got, that you would consider that that's privileged. Yes. So anything any member says to you under any circumstances is privileged, and thereby you cannot be compelled to testify as to that communication. Is that your position? Yes. And is that the position of the church as you understand it? Yes. And this was this was a, a person who'd been in a position a long period of time. And I don't know if he'd been prepped that way by the lawyers or this is what he actually believed, but I think many of them do believe that they have to hold as privilege everything they get. Of course, communications like this are sensitive and you don't wanna go blabbing about this to just everybody. But if you get a communication from a victim that they've been abused, that triggers legal obligations that you have 
typically to report. And in some states, in many states, there's one exception uh, for clergy, but it's but it's a it, it's it's an ex, it's an exception that's based upon a privileged communication, not the fact that the person receiving it happened to be a clergy person. They're a mandatory reporter just the same, and unless they can demonstrate that this was a privileged communication, that there that is, it was, and and it was, and it can't just be privileged in the sense that you heard it from the perpetrator. The perpetrator has to say it in the context in which it is truly confessional. He's saying it um, for purposes of relieving himself of the burden of his sin. Um, if it comes out in some other kind of way, um, or if there's a third person present, and there's indications that the perpetrator had no intention uh, to keep it confidential or privileged, or even considered it to be penitential in nature. I'm doing it for penitence. That's the whole concept behind it. When legislatures pass these, these, uh, these privileged laws, um, it was with that in mind. And it, and, it, and it was drawn originally from Catholicism, you know, the confessional, going into the confessional, private, communicating directly from the sinner to the priest which was necessary to, to get absolved of sin by, by God, is you had to go through this under that. But the way the Mormons have treated, the Mormon church has treated it, is that any communication we're going to treat as privileged, and therefore it relieves us of the legal duty uh, to, to, to report or to do anything about it. So I'm glad you asked that question. Um, it's, it's an important distinction, and it's another example of how the church abuses the laws uh, to, to to avoid responsibility. Thanks for calling in, Nathan. By the way, while we're getting the next caller, Tim, I just wanted to point out to you, you'd mentioned that uh, brochure or whatever it was that was produced by the church that was called a help. Do you remember that one? Yeah, and I have to tell you, uh, RFM, I'm seeing the low battery thing come up on my computer. So my uh -oh. computer may turn in a moment. Um, but anyways, okay, well before so that happens, me, yeah. Before, so that, before happened, that happened, the Mormon church doesn't use that expression a lot, but when it does, it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, Helps. where it says, and God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts, gifts of healing. Helps is its own separate category governments, diversities of tongues. So I think that's where they're getting this from, this, this brochure that they're putting out for the help and aid of the bishops and the leaders in the church. They're going to call it a help because of 1 Corinthians 12, 28 in the KJV, which is the Bible the LDS Church uses. Okay, so I'm glad we got that settled before your battery runs out. Well, I also, I you know, I, I guess I went to my, you know, grammarian and asked, what's the plural of help? It's help. Is it helps? No, it's help. There is no plural of help. There's just help and help. So I guess, you know, First Corinthians didn't have English grammar with them. But anyways, it just it was sort of a novelty. Uh, yes. But they do a lot of that. There's a lot of words in Mormonism that uh, are curious. It might be a way of creating a sort of amicus brief in a way. Uh, 
by being able to then go back to an authoritative as the scriptures and say that essentially that that manual uh, is authoritative. I don't know. Anyway, I don't it know either, but I think we better try and squeeze I, another quarter in before. I mean, when I first started this, it was okay to use the word Mormon. Now it's not, you know? No, uh, it's not. God has his priorities and they're very firm. And Mormon is at the top and kids being sexually abused is at the bottom. Okay, here is man. He only has enough time to get around to a certain number of things. All right, God, here this, is this has been a lot of fun. And if we get cut off, uh, I just want to tell you how much I personally enjoyed this. And I, uh, I'd love to come back and talk about this or anything else you'd like to talk about. There's so much here. It's just, I, I just gush because it just explodes out of me. Um, but there's so much devil in the details that um, I think would be helpful. But I've tried to touch upon as much of the stuff that I think would help illuminate how this system works. But um, you have to hear it a few times um, before it really sinks in. And uh, so thanks for giving me an opportunity to come forward and uh, proselytize uh, from the book of Kosnoff about um, why this place uh, is not a safe pace for your child. Yeah. We'll see if we have time to come back to second Kosnoff in the future. However, do you want to let the audience know how to get a hold of you and if they want to? Sure. Um, I have a semi-unique name that was given to my grandfather by a semi-literate civil uh, immigration officer in 1904 at Ellis Island. It's K-O-S-N-O-F-F, -F, uh, Tim Koshnoff. If you just Google me, you can find me in a phone number. Um, my email address is my name, Tim at Kosnoff.com. And my phone number, uh, call me, 425-830-8201, uh, uh, or text me, and I'll, we'll find a time to talk. Uh, but um, chances are I'm not going to really be in a position to represent you or, or help you because I'm sort of in the, the twilight of my career. But um, I'll do what I can to point you in the direction of somebody who might be able to help you. And uh, it's these cases are tough. And I can talk further about, and this would be another good program to talk, talk about, uh, is um, how difficult it is to bring these cases and what's actually involved from beginning to end of litigating one of these cases. We talked about how difficult it is. Um, but... Uh, it's not completely hopeless. And in many instances now, the church doesn't want to fight. Uh, you know, they know their case may have some value and they're willing to pay to resolve the case, even if they don't think it would survive a motion for summary judgment or they think it's subject to dismissal on statute of limitations. Sometimes they'll want to resolve this case because they know their bishop really messed up and they sort of feel bad about it, and they think this person deserves compensation, and they want to do right by the person. So sometimes I find the church is doing things for the right reason, and not just because it's legally expedient. So that's encouraging. So there's a new generation, there's a younger generation of lawyers at Curtin McConkie, and they're different, and they're better. And I, 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 I'm, you know, they're, they're doing a good job for their clients, and I would argue they're doing a better job than their uh, their predecessors did because um, they're resolving cases on behalf of the church, and uh, they're keeping bad headlines about the church, uh, you know, off the internet. And right. I think that is serving their clients' best interest. 
Tim, can we just try and squeeze in as many callers as we have left sure. breathing on the line? Because I know that if they're still there, they've been waiting a long time, and I'd hate to. Sure. Let me uh, let me see if I can. Uh, let me see if I can. Um, uh, and while you're doing that, Tim, I'll just I'll frame this. So um, Steve is on the line. Steve, I want to try to because this is essentially asking the same question that was asked earlier. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you want to ask what might be the church's motives behind why they handle this so these kinds of things so poorly, and if that's is that the case, Steve? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Tim answered it earlier and said it has a lot to do with the church trying to maintain a positive public image. I will add to that maybe an answer, which is uh, the church needs on the inside its members to perceive that the spirit of discernment works, the Holy Ghost works, leaders are called in a way that they are worthy to be uh, God's mouthpiece in stewardship over them. And if members became aptly aware of just how much that system doesn't work, there may be a large loss of faith from membership who perceives that maybe discernment and praying about callings isn't the best way to get a healthy person in that calling. Um, Is there anything beyond that, those two answers that you're looking for? Yeah, yeah, because I can kind of understand the, the that that sort of amoral corporate protective motive behind uh, working with bishops who have offended and other people in leadership positions. But I'm having a hard time understanding when uh, just a member who's not in a position of of any sort of leadership is also, you know, going to their bishop and told not to report. I can't understand how that advantageous politically or otherwise to kind of keep you know any case that comes their way keep keep hiding it you know regardless of the position Uh, well we'll throw that to tim i will tell you that i am astonished that time and time again the church acts as if they think that what they're doing is never going to come to light and they seem to be consistently surprised when it does Tim, what do you think about that question? Were you able to hear that from Steve? Yeah, yeah, I did. And it's, you know, I have to say it's it's like the one question that I've been trying to to answer for myself since I started doing this now 40 years ago, uh, which is why? why? Why do they do this? And, you know, there's the easy, you know, the sort of quick answer, well, they think like a corporation and it's about money and scandal prevention and all the reasons that institutions, you know, cover this stuff up um i think part of it is is just sort of innate with human beings is you know the the need to deny cover up that's the first response and as they say it's never the crime that gets you it's the cover-up that gets you um, i think that's part of it i also think that a lot has to do with the glacial pace at which change happens in the mormon church i'm told that it takes 50 years for things to happen or change in the Mormon church. So, um, you know, the church had positions on race and on all kinds of things that it has slowly moved off of because they were just untenable uh, legally, politically, uh, with members. Um, and so they've, they've had to respond but, you know, the leadership of this church, I mean, they're ancient, you know, they're dinosaurs, you know, they, they, they came up in a, you know, 
they were children when Franklin Roosevelt was in his first term. I mean, they're old. And um, so I think part of that is they're insulated. They're, they're not exposed uh, to uh, dissenting opinions. Uh, they don't hear from and are interested in hearing from rank and file Mormons who may have opinions on this. So I, you just, you don't see this stuff welling up from the bottom that is going to cause the leadership of the church to, to, to change. And so, you know, I'm hopeful that over time it will, but in the meantime, how many more kids have to get abused? Um, so ultimately I put the responsibility on the members. Um, if this church is going to change, it's going to take the members to change it, uh, either by leaving, protesting, or, you know, doing something to let them know that, you know, we put up with a lot, but this we're not going to put up with. And, you know, you have to change this policy. And I, I don't know if that's an impossibility uh, within uh, the ranks of the Mormon uh, community, but, you uh, uh, you know, it's sort of happened with the position, the shifting position on gays and the way they were treated uh, and how that shifted. I think that was in response to a reaction from, from many, many members who had children who were gay and uh, were very hurt and offended by the church's policy with respect to gays. I think something, I mean, that, that demonstrated to me that they can shift. They can change if they perceive that somehow their power and influence is being threatened. I was just checking on the uh, the Google there, Tim, and it turns out that President Nelson was born when Calvin Coolidge was president. <laughs> I Calvin mean, Coolidge, wow. and not by a hair. I mean, he was still president for five years when when uh, when our president was four or five years old. Calvin Coolidge was still president. I thought you were going to say it was his first term. <laughs> uh, what was his campaign? In every pot or, uh, actually, Calvin Coolidge was sort of famous for absolutely refusing to do anything. You know, it just, you know, it was, you know, the business of America is business. You know? So, and the church was a, certainly a different, different place then. Um, so, I don't know. I also think that there's this, you know, it has this long history of sexual secrecy and they've never really gotten over, you know, what happened in the 1800s around polygamy. Uh, the fact that the church is very close to being uh, completely dissolved uh, by a federal receiver. I mean, it's the only church in America that's ever, you know, had pitched battles with federal troops. Uh, I mean, Mormon church, is hardcore and what they believe in, they believe in and they don't give it up easy. And they demonstrated that in the battles over polygamy. And yeah. it was only at the point of complete dissolution uh, of, of the church and all of its assets that, uh, you know, uh, President Woodruff had a revelation that God wanted uh, polygamy to be practiced uh, only in the, in the uh, celestial kingdom, not on the temporal plane. So, yeah, so, you know, it, it, it can happen uh, when they saw, saw it, that you know Utah was going to lose federal contracts because of the way it was discriminating against uh, racial minorities. Uh, you know the church changed its position on that. So you know when they're pressed, they can change. Um, but the leaders are, you know, encrusted 
in ancient rock, but the members are young and they're modern. And many of them are educated and their eyes have been opened. And when your eyes are opened and you learn that you can think for yourself, um, that's a very dangerous thing for an institution like the Mormon church that just wants people to take it uh, on commandment um, and pay, pray, and obey. That worked in the Catholic church until it didn't. Mm. Did you say, oh, did you say encrusted or crusty? What was, what did you say? I think encrusted. Oh, sorry. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. And they're crusty. By the way, my mom used to, she was old enough to be my grandmother. She would tell a Calvin Coolidge joke, if you can believe that. So there's these two women who get into this bet. And one of them comes up to Calvin Coolidge and says, I just have a bet with my friend here that I can get you to say, no, she's betting me that I can't get you to say three words together. Of course, very famous for being taciturn. I can't get you to say three words together. And Calvin Coolidge looks at her and says, you lose. <laughs> Okay, a little historical right. humor there. By the way, do we have another caller? I just want to say last this one. thing before. Are, we do, yes? Mm -hmm. You know, the scriptures say that in the last days when Jesus comes again, he will bring the hidden things of darkness to light. And only now am I realizing that the reason he's going to have to do that is because it's the Mormon church that's been hiding everything. Yeah. Well, he's also going to need to bring Kevlar because I fear he's going to face the same fate he did 2,000 years ago. Yeah, that's just true. Just not a position, you know? It's like the Midnight Mormons wearing bulletproof vests to a debate. Jesus has to come in Kevlar. It's in this yeah. season. Yeah, he, uh, he decried the money changers at the temple, and, you know, mm -hmm. he fell afoul with the authorities, and uh, he starts coming with that radical uh, stuff again. You know, I see the same thing happening. You know, it's just... All right. Okay. Yeah, the last caller. The last uh, caller. On, but there's some kind of static. It sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Yeah. So, caller, you're on Mormonism Live. Are you there? Hello. 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 Is that me? Yeah. Yes. What's What's the name? Yeah. What's the name? Oh. oh. It's Susan Shepard. Okay, Susan. What? Uh, you're on Mormonism Live. What's your question? Um, well, actually, um, I don't know. I'm not sure. You talked about so many different things now that I'm actually on. <laughs> um, um, well, I guess that's just, uh, it's just, uh, I've been just attempting to figure out how to communicate and the theory of how do you find a way to communicate when I feel like that your freedom to speak uh, is already uh, a hard thing to do in America, let alone as an LDS member. As my mom used to work for the prophet of the LDS church, she passed away, and I'm dealing with an inheritance issue, and even being able to get an attorney here in Utah, so I'm kind of in a dire situation, so I was actually just attempting to figure out how to do your gold plan and getting logged in so I could private talk, but I, well, I love and prefer to do live, because of what's happening with my inheritance, it's actually tied into the Latter-day Saint church and how much money that I'm owed and how I want to spend that money and how it needs to be spent. And Who's your mother, Susan? That, um, right. It, Ina Shirlene Brunson 
Shepard Averson. She worked for the LDS Prophet downtown, and I was born in Fillmore, Utah, which is where she was born. I was born down the street from the first capital of Utah and the heritage of the LDS church. Well, this sounds like a very interesting question. Unfortunately, I think that uh, our guest, Tim Kosnoff, just timed out, and his computer just went completely down to zero on the old battery meter. So uh, thank you for calling in. At least you got some information from him about contact. You could Google him if you want to call him, although I expect he'll say he doesn't deal with that kind of law, but you know, maybe he can give you a referral. I have no idea. But I certainly wish you the best of luck. Thank you, Susan. Thank you very much for calling, and thanks for watching. Okay. All right. Well, that's our show. That's our show. We went as long as we possibly could with Tim Kosnoff. And, you know, he is an incredible human being. He has taken what most people look at as a career and made it, I feel, into a mission. And good for him. He was proselytizing. He won me over as a convert. How about you, Bill? Yeah. And uh, he used words that I like, like obfuscation. So, uh, I'm a big fan of Tim Kosnoff. He he seems to know Mormonism better than I think the average active faithful Latter-day Saint. Yes, and that says a lot too. I yeah. think that the church likes to keep their membership dumb and happy, or at least dumb and not asking questions. Yeah, amen to that. All right, so this is it, and uh, we are done tonight. We hit the two and a half hour mark. We're at two hours and 33 minutes. Um, I'm very, very proud of that. I want you to know, Bill, do you want to tell everybody what we're expecting to have happen next week? Cause that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So the plan as of right now is to have Bryce Blankenagel and Dan Vogel on and have them sort of critique from opposing positions, but not debating each other necessarily, but to critique our episodes on the Rigdon Spalding theory to share what they would add as historians, scholars, uh, in the realm, we've done lots of research on this theory and give them each a chance to share three, four, five points each and to see how we did and see if anything they say might change your mind uh, about the authorship theories behind the Book of Mormon. Yeah, that's going to be exciting. Um, I, I look forward to watching it and I hope that um, at least one of them agrees with me on something. Yeah. I need that validation desperately. I have Thanks a funny so much, everybody, for watching. Please join us next week at the same time. Same bat time, same bat channel for another episode of Mormonism Live. I remember not too long ago, I began to dive into the church history, where I began to find things contrary to what was taught me while growing up in primary. On one occasion, I read an account that struck me as odd. I brought this account to my dear bishop, and there I told him, of my doubts. He looked at me, and with a twinkle in his eye, he said, Tommy, you must know, you must doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. I looked at him, and with a twinkle in my eye, I told him, why, Bishop, that's complete bullshit.